Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's podcast, I'm joined by intelligence historian and author Calder Walton, and we discuss the future of British intelligence in the world of Brexit and Bellingcat. Just before we begin, if you enjoy this show, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. If you subscribe now, you'll get early access to interviews before they're published. Also, if you like the show, please leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast app. Every positive review or every review helps us gain more listeners. Also, if you like this podcast, you may enjoy my short film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at spy fiction and is now available on iTunes and Amazon. All you need to do is type in The Dry Cleaner Film to iTunes or Amazon and you'll see the film come up. I think it comes in about $1.99. If you become a Patreon subscriber at over $15, you will get a copy of that film included with your subscription. So you have the choice there. So thank you very much for your support. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I actually think it's one of our most interesting episodes. Uh, I think Calder is a fantastic guest, and, uh, and I hope to have him on again in the future to discuss similar topics. And without further ado, let's get on with the episode. I hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Calder, welcome to the Dry Cleaner cast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It was wonderful to have you on. Um, just for the benefit of listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself and what you do? Yeah, I'm the, um, I'm the director of research at the Intelligence Project at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. I'm also helped to run the Applied History Project here, mm-hmm. which is an effort to inform policymaking by looking at history. Yeah. Um, before that, I was uh, in Cambridge University in the UK, where and I uh, specialize specialized there, and I still specialize in intelligence history, so the history of spies and spying. Um, I'm currently writing a book about British, US, and Soviet intelligence in the Cold War. And I'm also general editor with uh, Christopher Andrew in Cambridge, my old supervisor of the three-volume Cambridge History of Espionage and Intelligence. Fantastic. So um, I've got quite a busy <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> schedule. That sounds good. Well, that History of Intelligence looks fascinating. And I, I must admit, I've got to just sit down and read the entire thing because it's quite yeah. big. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's... um. The big three-volume history is going to hopefully come out in um, – uh, we're working on um, contributors at the moment and it will hopefully be published in two years' time. Uh, you may have seen Chris Andrews' earlier uh, book that came out last year on um, – mm. again, on the history of intelligence secret world. This was uh, um, a single volume um, that he wrote and really yeah. the idea for the Cambridge history spun out of that. Um, and we're collecting uh, leading authors and scholars to write about intelligence – yeah. essentially from the earliest times, you know, the biblical times, all the way through to the present day, and just trying to always understand uh, the essential questions, which a lot of scholars still don't uh, really grapple with, which is mm. what difference did it all make? Um, you can 
quite easily in this subject, as you know, Chris, get lost in a sort of a maze of um, uh, espionage operations and counter-espionage operations mm -hmm. and smoke and mirrors and it's all uh, wilderness of mirrors. And then you can quite easily lose focus of the big picture. Well, what difference did it actually make? And we're going to try to answer that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Well, can you just tell us a little bit about how you kind of got started with researching British intelligence and your work with Christopher Andrew? Because Christopher Andrew, as you just mentioned, he's very famous for his work with intelligence mm. um, as an intelligence historian. And I know of him through his work with Oleg Gordievsky, who yes. uh, read a couple of his books. Yeah. So how, how, how did you get involved in all this? How did it all start? Well, I simply, actually, I read um, Christopher Andrew's um uh, groundbreaking book, uh, The Matrokan Archive, uh, mm. when I was an undergraduate. And um, I approached him and said, look, I'm really interested in this. I don't know anything about intelligence history. Um, but uh, I was actually specializing in um, medieval history at the time. Yeah. And um, he, he pointed me in the direction of uh, some records that were going to be declassified that could be a, a good opportunity for a master's dissertation. And really, that was the beginning of it. Um, the day I started my master's in Cambridge with, with him, uh, Chris Andrew got appointed to be the um, uh, authorized official historian of the British Security Service, MI5. And he asked me if I'd be interested in um, doing some part-time work on that project um, at MI5 headquarters, uh, looking at their historical records. And that sounded like an opportunity too good to, to pass up. So it took me about a nanosecond to say, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that was uh, six years of my life um, helping to write um, that history. Wow. So I mean, it was an extraordinary opportunity. Just, yeah, silly question. What was it like going into the MI5 headquarters? I mean, how did that feel? <laughs> Well, it was it was you know not something that you um, really expect to be doing when you're doing graduate work <laughs> mm. to suddenly be there. It was extraordinary. I was combining my research there um, with records that um, were about to be declassified, and then also yeah. d using records that were already declassified down at the National Archives in Kew. Mm. Um, and it was it was as I said, a really extraordinary opportunity to interact with the historical staff there and to understand the declassification process and then to look at the underlying records. So it it, um, it was a, a question of being at the right place at the right time and it was a really extraordinary opportunity um, that has allowed me, you know, without sounding uh, immodest, to really sort of be at the forefront of these um, records that are being declassified um, from Britain's intelligence services. Um, and there are, you know, as you may and your listeners may be aware, there are um, records declassified, you know, each year, which are um, really quite extraordinary in their breadth and scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and the, only, the only criticism I've heard about the declassification process from other writers is um, it's, it appears a little bit random in what does get declassified and what doesn't. That's right. So, and is it the National Archives and Q, isn't it? That's right. So it is. It is a little bit random. And my under well, uh, the, the the starting point is that that um, unlike <laughs> in the US, uh, mm. the Freedom of Information Act doesn't apply to Britain's intelligence services. So uh, you can write, you know, as a citizen resident in the UK, you can write to them and say, you know, I would like to know if you have a file on. Um, my grandmother or whatever, and they will simply say uh, we can neither confirm nor deny. They that The policy is uh, that they are essentially self-tasking with what records they um, declassify. Um, 
so that that it is the criticism is is fair it is a bit mm. random what they declassify but the effort is really uh, it all started with um the director general of MI5 uh, Sir Stephen Lander who um mm. was the DG um I, I think in the um late 1990s early 2000s certainly around um 911 time uh, and mm. he um he's a um medieval historian by training uh, got a, got a phd in um in history from cambridge and he is um essentially a historian that's gone off to do other things in his life um <laughs> and he realized that that the security services archive um was hugely historical historically significant the underlying records and about the people that that were targets of um uh, investigations um, or people that appeared on MI5's record uh, on their radar um, throughout the 20th century contained unique insights into those people, um, be it from uh, tap telephone conversations or indeed transcripts from uh, listening devices that have mm. been completely otherwise lost to history. So it's not simply a declassification process uh, for intelligence historians like myself, it's also people um, in, intended for biographers, um, people that are interested in writing about social history. I mean, the idea that it's a it's an extraordinary opportunity to look at the social history of left leaning communist parts of the um, uh, uh, of Britain in the middle of the twentieth century through the records that are declassified on the British Communist Party as I said, including telephone, tap telephone conversations and indeed um, transcripts from listening devices that are completely otherwise lost to history. Extraordinary, I, I think. Yeah, and I think you, you, um, there was an article you posted where you argued that um, many aspects of the Western intelligence activities are kind of a missing dimension to historical accounts of post-war diplomacy and international affairs. That's right. Um, is there anything you can say about that? Yeah, absolutely. This was a... Um, an argument really put forward uh, again by Chris Andrew and David Dilks in a, in a book that they wrote in the 1980s about the missing dimension, saying that mm. this that intelligence has been important to statecraft, uh, both for good and bad. You know, since uh, since the biblical times, uh, and that it continued um, obviously in the 20th century. But uh, at least on the British side. There was a kind of um, airbrushing out of intelligence in official records. Um, so the words GCHQ or MI5, MI6, you know, really were redacted from official records declassified by the British government at the time until before the 1990s, those services didn't officially exist. So if they didn't officially exist, there were no official records for them <laughs> to be declassified, a sort of peculiarly British approach to in, in, in yeah. intelligence. Um, so it was literally the missing dimension because they, those, the British side, they didn't, they didn't exist. Um, but even when there were records available and, and that if you knew where to look and could, could weave together um, their history, still there seemed to be a tendency from historians to discount the role of intelligence. And really bizarrely, uh, it seems to me that even some historians who actually worked in um, Britain's intelligence services themselves, mm. some Cambridge historians um, who worked in Bletchley Park during the Second World War, um, who, who knew at the coalface that the significance of code breaking then um, did not discuss intelligence uh, in their own historical scholarship, um, mm. which seems a curious uh, approach to me and a fundamentally yeah. misguided one. 
Yeah, I mean, do, is that with those people in particular? Is it something to do with um, their interpretation of official secrets, or was it a kind of cultural thing where they felt that um, by talking about that secret world, they're somehow undoing I, the good work? Yeah, I think there's an element of you, you know. Uh, I mean, there are clear, clearly there are at the time after Bletchley Park, um, mm. after the Second World War, you know, there are incredibly valid security reasons about not talking about it. This was the greatest, one of the greatest secrets of the Second World War and the British government was um, going to extraordinary lengths to, ma to maintain the secrecy of um, the codebreakers who had broken the Enigma code at Bletchley Park. Um, but once the secret was out, there still uh, in the 1970s persisted a um, tendency by historians and other scholars uh, just to simply ignore it. I think that there's um, an element of, I think it has to be said, of uh, snobbishness about this, that, mm. that, that mm. perhaps intelligence history or studying spies is, you know, good fun, uh, coffee table history, but it's not really serious. Mm. And what certainly I'm trying to do in my in my work uh, leading on from, I mean, it, the, the subject really started with Harry Hinsley, um, who was the official historian of, again, Bletchley Park uh, recruit from Cambridge in the Second World War then became Professor of International Relations at Cambridge and wrote, uh, your listeners might be aware, the uh, multi-volume official history of British intelligence in the Second World War. He was really the sort of founding father of this, this field of research. Um, Christopher Andrew in Cambridge has taken um, on from him. And then there's a new generation, including myself, who are uh, going to hopefully be doing this for the rest of our lives and trying to make, make it a scholarly approach that's one of mm. the um things that i'm going to try to achieve with the multi-volume cambridge history is to actually solidify this subject as mm. an academic um uh, discipline one I suppose, random question why do you feel it's important to have a clearer picture of the intelligence services and their work well i think for good and bad it's to understand mm. uh, what the purpose of intelligence is what intelligence services can reasonably be expected to do and then also mm. what they do not do uh, mm. the, the 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 problem uh, in britain and in other countries with intelligence services i mean clearly a secret service uh, you know emphasis on the first word secret uh, yeah. there does need to be an element of secrecy but there doesn't need to be so much secrecy about the past uh, track record of what they have done to allow conspiracy theories to uh, mm. develop. That's the the, the biggest single um, effort, um, I think, in the declassification of records and, and scholars looking at the historical track record of this is to demystify intelligence, um, to understand its impact in statecraft, what it can actually do do for policymakers um, and to um, correct uh, distortions and conspiracy theories. Um, and it's also crucially to understand where intelligence services have abused their authorities and powers in the past mm. um, and try to use use that to understand and to help correct it not happening again. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think the – and it's great that you're doing that because I think the um, – the problem is popular culture fills the gap. Um, so people look at James Bond or Jason Bourne as kind of uh, how the intelligence world works. And it's quite different from what I understand. That's absolutely right. And I, I, I can speak uh, very confidently here uh, that at the, um, you know, arguably uh, the leading academic think tank in the US, the Harvard's Kennedy School, there is very little 
uh, for people getting master's degrees here on intelligence. Again, that's something that we're trying to correct. What that means is that people coming through some of the best institutions in the world that are going into policymaking actually land on the first day of their their, their job as policymaker, um, know incredibly little about intelligence and mm. do think that it's all James Bond or Jason Bourne. Um, and actually having an understanding about um, what uh, intelligence services do and do not do, I think, would greatly enhance policymakers' abilities to be able to use intelligence correctly. At the end of the day, um, intelligence assessment is a two-way street between a decision maker, a policymaker, and a briefer. And if nothing else, learning about um, the track record and history of intelligence allows a policymaker to uh, think about the right questions to ask from an mm. uh, intelligence briefer. If you don't have a conceptual framework about the kind of questions to ask, uh, it's going to make an interaction with professional briefers uh, much, much, much more difficult. Yeah, and at a policy level too. I mean, in a way, the intelligence services themselves are a little bit under threat from policymakers if the policymakers don't really know or understand how they work because if they're the future leaders of, of a political institution, they could cut budgets and all sorts of stuff. That's exactly right. Um, again, um, understanding some sort of rudimentary um, uh, basic principles of intelligence, you know, everything from the intelligence cycle to what is covert action how is it done in the you know in the US under what legislation what can be done what can't be done um, these are all really important questions for policymakers because certainly looking at this historically the problem with in terms of covert action in the US historically was a willingness on the part of um, successive white house administrations to use covert action as an alternative way of uh, of diplomacy, where so where where diplomacy statecraft failed, the um, they reached for covert action and the CIA as a panacea to what should have been able to be done through uh, um, diplomacy, mm -hmm. and this is based on really essentially on a fundamental misreading about the nature of what covert action can do. Um, if if, um, if there had been more attention given to, for example. The CIA's uh, Ray Klein, um, the, who was the deputy director of intelligence in the CIA, um, his, his his memoirs, his works, where he said that essentially covert action, um, all that it can really reasonably be expected to do is to go, give a, nu a nudge to political events in one way or another. It's to magnify existing trends, never to be able to uh, conjure up things out of out of nowhere. And again, this idea of um, some of the myths about CIA and MI6 coups in different parts of the world in the early Cold War, I think led to an exaggeration, a dangerous exaggeration about the capabilities of intelligence services um, rippling on through the Cold War. Um, and again, so understanding basic principles, I think, would have um, allowed for a much more um, healthy correction. Mm. One other interesting thing I've observed over the years is just how um, people have sort of uh, talked more about 
the should we say the ills of the CIA and Western intelligence, and they don't ever really ever talk about the Russians, um, and and especially like in places like sort of South America and the Middle East, you would kind mm. of get the mistaken impression that it was really only America operating in those places, when in fact there was you know a big heavy Russian contingent too. Absolutely, I mean uh, the the thing that I'm continually struck by is looking through some of the best uh, histories and most recently published histories of not only the Cold War. But you mentioned um, South America, but histories mm. of Latin America, developing nations, you will, as you say, invariably find references to the CIA. You will in probably find a reference to MI6. You will look in vain to find any reference to the KGB or indeed active measures, mm. the, the KGB Soviet uh, term for covert action. Um, this is then juxtaposed really pretty sharply uh, with events in our own time uh, about Russian active measures, covert action. And we're supposed to suddenly think that this is something new. Well, in fact, it's not new. And I, again, I'm, I'm inclined to be pretty harsh on um, historians and other scholars who have failed to incorporate um, the nature, scope and scale of Soviet covert action, uh, active measures in their historical research, um, which has given a warped sense of um, the history of international relations in the developing world in particular. Um, and has also meant that any reasonable observer of, of those books and then looking at the daily news today would somehow think that there's something new. Well, they're not new. They're fundamentally not new. The technology has changed today, but not the underlying principles of um, mm. essentially making, uh, trying to influence the course of events um, in other countries. That's what um, Soviet intelligence did. And that's what uh, Western uh, intelligence did in the Cold War. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I want to um, just have a quick chat with you about your – you wrote a really great article in Foreign Policy magazine. It was last year about um, – it's called The Spies Who Came In From The Continent. And it's sort of about the future of British intelligence post-Brexit because Brexit's mm. a, a, a big sort of factor in the UK at the moment, obviously, um, and for British intelligence. And um, yeah. you mentioned in there that Britain has long enjoyed and cultivated an image of producing superior spies. Yeah. Uh, and that image has really helped them. So can you talk to us a bit about how they've kind of cultivated that image? Yeah. Well, again, I think it goes back to what we've already we, we've talked about. It's about the mm. sort of the secrecy that's been built up around Britain's intelligence services and their um, sort of the mystique around them. Um, and there are obviously perfectly valid reasons why Britain's intelligence services, uh, you know, throughout the 20th century were at times extraordinarily capable and provided really extraordinary intelligence, be it um, uh, Bletchley Park codebreakers mm. um, during the Cuban Missile Crisis um, in the later Cold War, um, uh, recruiting uh, agents deep inside of uh, Soviet intelligence. So there are, you know, astonishing uh, achievements. Um, now that some of the records are coming out, we can also find that there were some spectacular failures. Um, Britain's intelligence services, because they've been shrouded in uh, mystery for so long, as I said earlier, uh, it didn't actually, the British government didn't actually get around to placing them on the statute books until 1989 and then 1994, which meant that they were, there was a much greater um, uh, appreciation for Britain's intelligence services in fiction, uh, James Bond, than there mm. ever was in any kind of um, 
uh, let's put it, uh, more serious um, literature. Yeah. So they have carefully cultivated this this image. And, you know, uh, senior officers and chiefs of MI6 are, are on record about saying that actually James Bond is a fantastic recruitment um, um, drive for it mm. and mm. that it's got a worldwide um, brand name with James Bond, even if the reality of the secret world um, has no resemblance whatsoever to the <laughs> to uh, James Bond. Um, it's still a wonderful sort of image for yeah. um, British intelligence to cultivate. Um, intelligence has allowed Britain, the British government, um, to deliver a really uh, force multiplier to punch far above its weight in international relations um, by being able to provide um, at times phenomenal intelligence to um, uh, allied governments. Can you give us a sort of dummy's guide to how intelligence is sort of distributed and consumed by the government? Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking, uh, well, certainly historically, um, this was through the Joint Intelligence Committee, the, the CHIC. Um, so this would be, I mean, it, as with everything, it's difficult to sort of provide a very simple answer. But historically, the way that this worked was um, through weekly meetings at the Joint Intelligence Committee, um, which would then report at a cabinet level um, mm. on reports. Um, either that uh, British ministers had asked for to know to requirements about certain subjects or subjects that the JIC um, believed uh, were significant for ministers to know about. Many of the joint intelligence, the JIC records from uh, the early Cold War are now, again, declassified and provide extraordinary research opportunities for um, any of your listeners who are interested in doing um, either undergraduate or graduate work, or indeed in any other capacity, which they do. They are now sitting at uh, the National Archives uh, in Kew. Historically, also, uh, it was certainly the case that at the moments of extreme crisis, the heads of the services, MI5, MI6, and GCHQ, um, had access to um, the Prime Minister um, and were able to report mm. about threats to British national security directly to the prime ministers. So that was the mechanism. The JIC still clearly operates today. Your listeners doubtless will have heard about the JIC in relation to Iraq and weapons of yeah. mass destruction. Um, and there is now also uh, uh, the, the National Security Council in, in the UK, I believe it's called, which I confess I have not been able to really understand the um, the flow of information between the JIC mm. and that mm. that new body and how that interacts um so that's that's uh you know is it a duplication of um bureaucracies or is it doing something new um that that is uh certainly in the in the US there have always been problems of um intelligence being passed through to the right people and the way when when it's discovered that intelligence was not being fed up the chain of command the answer is usually to create a new bureaucracy to sort out the problem and that actually um often makes the problem worse not better yes i mean the u.s has um i couldn't say off the top of my head but it has a lot of agencies 17 or is it 16 or 17 different agencies yeah precisely wow. um <laughs> really dwarfing anything that can uh british british intelligence um britain's intelligence or european intelligence services can can um can offer the u.s intelligence community is is massive. I've forgotten the the 
statistics for the number of people with top top secret security clearance in the US, mm -hmm. but it is astonishing. Um, and as I said, dwarfs anything that the the UK has. The other the other um, thing about the by by contrasting with the US um, mm -hmm. intelligence community is the number of people that have that are working on intelligence um, intelligence and national security, but as contractors in commercial outfits um, mm. linked to the intelligence community, but not actually a part of it. So there is this really significant debate going on about the moment about um, the nature of the US intelligence community and where the boundaries actually should lie between it, between commercial um, outfits and um, and and in particular organizations and firms doing work for the U.S. intelligence community that uh, the U.S. intelligence community could do, but actually it's, it's more cost-effective um, to farm it out if it's about open source information and let other entities do it um, in a more cost-effective manner. But then that does mean that those working on intelligence in um, national security in the U.S. is expanding even more. Um, and was it Edward Snowden worked for one of those, didn't he? Ed, precisely. It's just what I was going to say. I mean, that, that that brings with it all sorts of problems about the nature of security checks, um, about clearances. There, there are. It's well reported that there is not, in fact, one uniform level of security clearance for people that are working in um, private firms um, and then within the um, U.S. federal government, and that seems to me a huge problem. Um, of not having a level playing field about those given uh, security clearance. And am I right in the UK we don't quite have that culture? I'm aware of um, sort of people work on a freelance basis, but I'm not aware of private companies uh, necessarily providing intelligence in the same way. I think that's what – I mean, again, uh, as a historian, I'm sort of stuck in the past quite happily in the past. So I'm not, I'm not an, certainly an expert in uh, present-day circumstances. Mm. But what I can say very confidently is that historically um, there was a much greater uh, tendency in the US for um, uh, people to go between think tanks, uh, even universities and uh, the US intelligence community to go backwards and forwards. And that mm. simply just – did not exist in the – there's an incredibly different culture in the US that the, in the post-war years in the Cold War that grew up about, um, you know, be it uh, think tanks like, like the Rand Corporation um, where people would um, go between um, uh, the intelligence community um, and then working for um, outside think tanks. And that did not happen um, to such an extent in the in the UK. That's right. No, no. So um, maybe a silly question, uh, but why is British intelligence sort of so important to the UK? I think why is it so important uh, in 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 substance is because it has allowed um, British intelligence has allowed the British government really to punch far above its weight in terms of hard power uh, in the mm -hmm. post-war years, certainly. Um, by being able to provide at times superior, crucial intelligence about world events. Mm. Um, so it has allowed policymakers um, to be uh, ahead of the game in terms of decision-making about world events and have been able to provide allies, allied governments with um, insights into um, the threats, national security threats facing them. It's 
on a on a different looking at it a different way. Though why is it so important to to Britain? Um, they again have cultivated an image of um, um, mystery uh, that that uh, that that I think whether one is inherently suspicious about the nature of um, uh, intelli- intelligence services or um, think it's all about James Bond, whichever direction one is coming at from this, um, it's very tempting. Do you want to know more about them? And mm-hmm. I think Britain, um, more than other countries, certainly European countries, has has been expert I- at cultivating this this image. Yeah, well, this pod, podcast is a testimony to want to know more about the intelligence yeah, service. Precisely, <laughs> precisely, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, brilliant. Well, um, so there are a lot of advantages of the British intelligence services being a part of the EU. Can you mm. just tell us a little bit about what some of those advantages were? Well, I mean, the the striking thing about um, looking at a, the Brexit events from three thousand miles away over here in the US, that the, the the striking thing before the referendum in twenty sixteen was the mm. uh, the very loud calls by uh, serving and f- former senior British intelligence officials saying um, very clearly that uh, Brexit would uh, damage. British national security. Um, they they pointed to um, things like the data sharing agreements um, within the EU being part of Europol, the European uh, Police um, uh, Organization, um, having access to shared data about fingerprints that is used for both criminal um, and counterterrorism efforts, DNA uh, information. Um, they pointed to ver- various different information or intelligence sharing mechanisms in the EU that by definition, if Britain um, uh, was removed from the mm. EU, they wouldn't have access to. Um, now, Britain has left the, the EU now and um, those same underlying issues, it seemed to me, are still there. I, I, I'm not sure that they have been resolved in a way that will allow – um those underlying criticisms um to be corrected so it's yeah. really as as with so much about brexit it seems to me that it's um watch the space because uh yeah i i don't know the answer to them yeah because it is that sort of fear about uh, information being lost because there was, there's been a scan well i say scandal it was a newspaper reported I think it was about a week ago. Apparently, the Home Office had been caught trying to download information from the um, the Schengen Information Centre, I believe it is. Right. Um, and um, so there seems to be some panic by the looks of things because they mm. don't seem to know what's happening either. No, and well, the Schengen share information uh, sharing arrangements were again some of the um, some of the mechanisms that, that those criticising or warning about um, Brexit were pointing to. Um, and again, so how has that been resolved? Now, this is presumably the topic of discussions right now. Uh, and But as I said, as with so much, uh, it remains to be seen actually how this will play out in terms of the, the actual agreement to leave, um, uh, to leave the, the EU. Um, yeah, it's uh, – there are – there are – 
there's a distinct minority of former British intelligence official, senior office, officials who say that Brexit will not impact um, the role of British intelligence in the world. There seems to be, certainly from the US uh, perspective, that things will carry on as usual. Uh, you know, certainly NSA and GCHQ are so intertwined that, mm. that you know, so intertwined that that relationship is not going anywhere. But there are there are um, significant discussions I'm aware of from the US about um, going forward. Um, will the US intelligence community look increasingly to European agencies and not in the so-called special relationship with the UK. Um, I think that's an issue that really needs to be grappled with um, uh, very clearly uh, it, from the UK perspective. There's also, you know, looking at it historically, there's some um, there's some clear precedents for the US intelligence community looking to build stronger relationships with European agencies and get out of the so-called entangled relationship um, with British intelligence. Um, I, I spent some time looking at the uh, now declassified diary of the head of the NSA, William Odom, which is now mm. down at the Library of Congress in um, in Washington. And his diary is full of scathing remarks about um, GCHQ and says that he, is, he was, this is in the mid-1980s, looking for any which way to get out of the entangled relationship between NSA and GCHQ and to build greater um, uh, relations uh, with uh, particular German um, um, intelligence services. Now, that there's a precedent there. Will, that, will those same conversations be happening right now? I don't know. But it seems to me uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they were, put it that way. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Well, so that there's a so basically there's a risk of uh, increased competition once the Britain leaves the EU. Well, it's not um, only not yeah. only increased competition with the EU, but actually it's mm. happening at a moment when there is it seems to me a really an existential crisis going on for intelligence services, even without Brexit. Uh, mm. Britain's intelligence services, as with so many other, as with all intelligence services in liberal democracies, are going through an absolutely existential crisis at the moment. Uh, in terms of the cyber digital revolution. That's yeah. to say there is now so much information available and the policymakers, like like any all of us, are just drinking from a fire hose of information each day mm. that there is now so much more pressure being put on intelligence services to deliver something that policymakers uh, cannot get from other sources. So um, astonishing outfits like Bellingcat are doing yeah. remarkable reporting about, um, um, uh, in particular, you know, uh, Russian intelligence, but all sorts of other other subjects. Well, that's all open source um, uh, reporting. So, so the the question has to be and is being asked um, of intelligence services. What's the what's the margin that you can give us? What can you give us extra that we can't get from um, those kind of um, open source outfits? So there's a there's a really an existential crisis going on at the moment about challenging um, the deliverables uh, from intelligence services. So that's happening at the same time as Brexit. So it, it's a um, I think a um, safe to say a a, a worrying time for Britain's intelligence services at the moment. 
Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. So there's obviously increased competition, um, and with governments who are, should we say, fiscally conservative, they've got they can save money by subscribing to somebody like Bellingcat as opposed to um, paying thousands, well, millions, uh, mm. or if not billions, to their mm. intelligence services. There must be a real concern internally right now. I think that's absolutely right, and um, I think that the development of uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence is also going to cause a uh, absolute watershed um uh, huge shift in the nature of intelligent services um so if if um machine learning uh, can be applied to open source um in intelligence um in, uh, intelligent services themselves will have mm. to compete with that um so they need to be ahead of the game in terms of adapting to new technologies um, to provide policymakers with the best possible intelligence. Having said all that, mm. the, the the seismic changes that are uh, underway in terms of the digital revolution, there's still, it seems to me, um, will always be a need for intelligence services that can yeah. provide um, information about the mindset intentions and capabilities of adversaries and and you know despite the really colossal changes in terms of um the information landscape at the moment there is still for example going to still be a need for old-fashioned spies agents in the right place at the right time that hasn't changed throughout history as i mentioned in the one of the the main themes that we're going to be trying to show in the three-volume Cambridge history of intelligence is that the, the principles of spying, a spy in the right place at the right time, hasn't changed. And I don't think it will change. Um, I'm confident to say it won't change going forward. That that despite all of this um, new information um, that is available, um, having a spy um, close to a leader uh, who can tell you what he or she is thinking, that's still priceless uh, information that won't be available from other sources. Well, they provide context, don't they? Because um, if if your satellite imagery has found that, I don't know, um, ex-government has suddenly got a stockpile of nuclear weapons, um, you need yeah. to know what they intend to do with them. That's exactly it. It gives you intentions that you can't get from... Mm. Really, generally speaking, you can't get from technical intelligence. You, you know, technical whether it's SIGINT or imagery intelligence will show you think developments, but not the intention that's lurking behind that. Um, as the intelligence professionals like to talk about the difference between secrets and mysteries, and um, r secrets are hidden but knowable information, and mysteries are hidden and unknowable information. Well. The challenge is to try to turn a mystery into a secret. And you can get with all of the technical intelligence capabilities uh, in the world. It seems to me human intelligence, um, which has been around since biblical times, is still going to be able to provide you with, as you said, the intentions 
um, the mysterious, if you like, intentions um, of a um, adversary in a way that the technical inte- intelligence can't. But really, I mean, what you know, and again, we see this historically with the declassification of records. Um, it's not. It would be incorrect to think of uh, one type of intelligence, technical intelligence or human intelligence, as "quote unquote" better than the other. They work um, uh, to bring together uh, different parts of the picture, so each each complements each other, uh, and to bring a tapestry um, about an, uh, a um, particular issue. Yeah, one question that comes to mind is: Do you th- well? Um, do you think that Brexit, with all the anti-immigration rhetoric attached to it? may have done damage to Britain's image abroad and do you think it might make people less willing to kind of cooperate and become assets for British intelligence in the future? I think that I mean difficult to say isn't it Mm. Um, Mm. you know it again the the if I wanted to sort of answer that properly we'd we'd want to have uh, evidence or data about um the, the motivating reasons why people spied for Britain in the past and then be able to see if that's likely to change today. We don't have that. It's not declassified. Um, you know, there are at one level, I think that that's correct, that there's a um, um, an ideological issue right now about um, the extent to which what does Britain actually stand for at the moment uh, so that there is a serious crisis going on about Britain's identity in the future, whether that translates into, you know, a meeting uh, in a dark alley in uh, whatever capital around the world to provide information, um, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I think that those things, the, the, the gritty coalface of intelligence probably won't change. And, and one of the motivating factors that we know throughout history is um, – uh, agents are motiva- motivated by cash. So if if the cash is still flowing to agents, um, then I don't think that's going to change anything. But um, you know, there are certainly you can under you can you you can understand how uh, intellectually that might um, that might occur uh, with with um, people who have valuable information, perhaps wanting to. Uh, provide it to countries that don't have this sort of rhetoric of anti-immigration. But uh, again, I just think that the the data just simply isn't available to be able to quantify that and measure that in any way. Yeah, no, fair enough. So for all the potential downfalls of Brexit, the British intelligence services do have the potential to become a, a leader in certain areas of espionage. Um, can you talk to us about some of the opportunities that there are for the services to thrive and lead in? Yeah, well, I think we've already touched on them. It seems to me that um, the, the greatest um, – Britain's intelligence services have been historically phenomenal at the forefront of new technologies as as they have come online and harnessing them and using them. And the, and the, the challenge for today is – as we've already talked about uh, with the digital cyber revolution is to um, stay ahead and to provide policymakers um, with information that they can't obtain from other sources. So it seems to me that um, that being ahead of the game in terms of um, machine learning from big data um, and then pushing towards artificial intelligence, that uh, those are the areas that uh, we we can imagine – Britain's intelligence services should be concentrating on and will provide them with capabilities that others 
cannot. So th- this is all a way of saying that, that the intelligence services have always been nimble on their feet in terms of using and exploiting new technologies. And now uh, they will have to be even even more so. I think that a lot of it, as I said, um, concerns big data um, um, and machine learning. And then also, as we talked earlier, um, about good old-fashioned agent recruitment and that having a well-placed human source, the right place at the right time, has historically paid off dividends for Britain's intelligence services and uh, the British government more generally on the international stage. And presumably, you can hope that that is uh, continuing right now. Yes, yeah, we do hope there's someone somewhere out there. Because um, I think of Oleg Penkovsky and Oleg Gordievsky as two good it, examples of uh, British-run assets who are very vital. Ex- extraordinarily vital. And again, there's an example with a Penkovsky case mm. of um, historians, um, other scholars who have, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis has been studied and scrutinized probably more than any other event in, in world history. Um, for some reason, still some of the best books um, about it overlook the important role of Oleg Penkovsky in the crisis. So all of the major U.S. Uh, assessments of Soviet missiles during the Cuban Missile Crisis had a stamp on the top, and the stamp was Ironbark, and that was Penkovsky's codename. That meant that the intelligence assessments that reached uh, President Kennedy during the crisis had all been cross-checked against the intelligence that Oleg Penkovsky, deep in the GRU, uh, Soviet military intelligence, had provided to MI6 and the CIA. This allowed uh, Kennedy's um, White House to understand um, how far progressed Soviet missiles were on Cuba pointing at the U.S., in other words, without Penkovsky's uh, intelligence, they wouldn't have been able to properly interpret the um, imagery intelligence from U-2 spy planes. They wouldn't know how long they had to negotiate um, with the Kremlin in order to try to resolve the uh, the crisis. Absolutely essential. And it's been sitting there staring in the faces of historians for a long time um, about the, the the nature of Penkovsky's intelligence. But for some reason, it gets back to our earlier conversation, they've ignored it. Um, certainly, there's a valid reason, you know, why would you know that um, the word stamped at the top iron bark of uh, all of the uh, intelligence assessments meant Penkovsky? Well, but the answer has been out there for um, 20, 30 years, um, if, you, if you care to look. So the, again, there's an element of um, just uh, not really conceptually understanding what the value of intelligence can be during massive international crises like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, So again, it gets back to our earlier conversation. This is what I'm certainly trying to um, correct during my my research. Yeah. One one thing, just back to we were discussing earlier about the sort of Five Eyes relationship and America's relationship with Britain, uh, GCHQ and NSA. One of the threats that seems to come up to that relationship is the... um, there's been an ongoing debate in the US about and the UK about the role of the Chinese tech firm Huawei. 
Yes. Um, and in the UK, the government's now allowing um, Huawei to supply a limited, well, supply give allow Huawei a limited role in supplying 5G across the UK. And that seems to have caused, ruffled some feathers in America. Um, mm. Mm. Do you think that's going to potentially cause a problem for the Five Eyes relationship in the future? Again, it's... Um hugely um, important point. It's difficult to know, though. I mean, the British government's position on on this is that the uh, Five Eye networks will be completely shut off from Huawei's um, hardware on the 5G network. And uh, at at the end of the day, you have to take the UK government's word for it. But it does seem to me uh, that the um, having Huawei in the UK 5G network um, would allow the Chinese government to use it as an intelligence collection platform. And during the seismic change underway in terms of um, intelligence collection, um, that could easily impact um, Chinese cap- China's capability to mine big data about Britain and its intelligence services. So... You know, it's been estimated that in the Cold War, uh, 70 or 80 percent of the intelligence that the um, Western intelligence services, British and U.S. intelligence needed was from secret sources. And 20 percent, 25 percent was this um, was from open source. At the moment, that paradigm is completely reversed. Um, and it's been estimated that 80 um, percent of information that the US and Britain and Britain needs is from open source. Well, if you've got hardware um, that allows massive data collection um, openly through the 5G network, that to me is a potentially very considerable national security threat. And it also has to be said that the, the UK's position is lies in sharp contrast to other, not only the US, but um, you, you mentioned five, five Eyes, uh, certainly, um, Australia that is very concerned about would be very concerned about uh, Huawei on its five G network. Do you think? Do you think this is being forced upon us um, in the UK purely because it's a it's a political decision because of trade? Because uh, I'm assuming now we're leaving the EU, we have to make friends elsewhere um, for trade, and it feels like um, that Britain's appeasing the Chinese government potentially. It does feel like that. Again, I, I won't be able to speak about this anything more than um, what I've read in the the press, but it certainly does mm. feel that way. Uh, again, uh, it's it's going to be an issue that hopefully in twenty or thirty years' time there will be um, records that have been that are going to be declassified about this and. Um, yeah. Believe me, I'll be there at the National Archives trying to figure out what was going on at this time. It's all very, it seems very difficult to to understand the UK's government's position on this, um, uh, at least from from over here um, uh, in, in the US. Colder, thank you so much for your time today. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? Thanks for having me, Chris. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you could have a look on my website, uh, calderwalton.com, um, or on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, Calder underscore Walton, and I comment um, quite frequently on intelligence and national security issues, usually trying to bring a historical perspective to them. Um, and you can also see on on uh, through Twitter or on my website or at my website through Harvard Kennedy School um, my publications as I write them. So watch this space. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you very much. 
like what we're doing? Support the show by becoming a Dry Cleaner Cast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. For more information about the podcast, visit our website at drycleanercast.co.uk. Thanks for listening.